I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Tara June Winch in conversation with Melissa Lukashenko, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Jingiwala Jimbalang. Hello, friends. Welcome to, to this session of the Byron Writers Festival where we'll be um, having a yarn with Tara June Winch about her fabulous novel, The Yield. Um, Byron, uh, Byron Festival has supported the Indigenous Literacy Foundation for six years now and is proud to be fundraise, fundraising for their vital work again in 2019. Um, this is quite close to my heart because my mum grew up exceptionally poor without money for food or clothes, let alone books. And it was her lack of books which um, led to her insisting that we go to the local library, that we read, that we um, valued Western education. Um, and yet still only one in ten kids in remote communities in the Northern Territory can read well. And that's the statistic that drives the ILF's commitment to improve literacy rates through gifting books and publishing community stories in first languages. So if you can't imagine a world without books, please think about chucking a dollar or two in the orange boxes or talk to the crew at the ILF tent. I'm deaf as a post, I swear to God. She's asking me if I wanted a blankie. I thought she said, do you want a bicky? <laughs> to which the answer is yes, I do want a bicky. <laughs> this is a trick question. <laughs> okay. So, Tara, your beautiful, weighty and necessary novel, The Yield. You're living overseas, as you have done for quite a while now, but the book is set in and a hymn to Wiradjuri country. Tell us what Wiradjuri country feels like, smells like, is like for you as a Wiradjuri woman. Um, it is, to a stranger's eye, it's a, it's a landscape with nothing. Uh-huh. And so I had to go through the process and... I had to revisit this landscape, especially for Swallow the Air, my first book. So mm. in 2004, I was travelling out to rural New South Wales, which mm. is um, over the Blue Mountains, a big expanse, which is Nurembang, which is Wiradjuri country. Um, it covers all the Murray-Darling tributaries and uh, Murrumbidgee yep. River. Um, all that country where water's a terrible issue, huh? Hey? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this is from growing up in Wollongong? This is growing up on the coast. So yeah, yeah. I grew up off country. Mm. Um, my dad grew up on country and then was removed yeah. and then spent his adult life away from country and has now just returned to country with his siblings too, which yeah. is really nice. Like they've camped along the river and they've mm. sort of claimed an ownership of it again. Yeah. yeah. Um, How many of his siblings are alive? Oh, Too many them. to count. Yeah, seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And at what age was he able to return? He's just returned in the last two years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As a fifty-eight-year-old man. Wow. And his sisters and his brother is camping on the river too. Yeah. 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 Which Fantastic. is really healing for for them because they were removed. Mm, mm. Um. 
Yeah, like I said, to claim that ownership. Actually, my auntie lives on Wiradjuri Crescent in Wagga Wagga. (laughs) So she's completely claimed it. (laughs) Every Wiradjuri person in Wagga would be wanting to live on that crescent, (laughs) hey? But it's beautiful country. Like I said, to a stranger's gaze, there's nothing there. It's, yeah. it's, it's foreboding country. It's flat, wide expanses, yeah. granite boulders, um, sheep or, or wheat farming and, yeah. and you really do have to scratch the surface to find that hidden beauty, to find the bird song, mm. um, to find water. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, I, it, there's something charming, not charming because it's so colonial, but there's something really um, moving, moving about yeah. a place that doesn't, it not un, it's unlike Bundjalung, which is so obviously beautiful and abundant and rich. Oh, nowhere compares with Bundjalung. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's shit compared to Bundjalung. <laughs> 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 yeah. I remember uh, I was down at Lake George. Uh, I was working with the Us Mob riding group, Wiradjuri. Most, uh, partly Wiradjuri, partly not, at a... Um, I think it was a Quaker retreat out the back of Lake George in that flat, fairly dry but very, very beautiful um, country and yeah. it, and the, the mountains in the far distance. And I just thought this place has got a real beauty all of its own yeah. and it felt very special. Mm. And being there with a uh, Wiradjuri elder who's just passed made it, you know, uh, that auntie, much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so the yield is a, a story of return with three main characters. You've got August Gundawindi is the youngish woman, uh, 30-odd, returning from living overseas back to the ancestral home. Um, Poppy Albert, the patriarch, and uh, the third character is the Reverend Greenleaf. So um, do you want to begin by just talking to me about Poppy Albert? Uh, Did he spring fully formed into your mind or was he a a (laughs) long-researched character or what? Um, Poppy opens the novel and his voice felt natural. Mm. It is, I know, but I can pinpoint where it comes from. It's definitely a combination of my grandfather's voice, my father's voice, that reasonable voice and and Mm. kind of joking voice. Mm. And then it's definitely that internal voice at 3am that tells you how to um, navigate a good life, you know, that tells you those Mm. truths that are hard to, sometimes Mm. hard to bear. Yeah. Yeah. But he was the easiest voice to write. He's he's incredibly compelling as a character. I read this and and I thought Poppy is just one of the most perfectly formed characters in modern Australian literature. I could I could listen to him, you know, forever, I think. And as you say, he opens the book with um do you want to read a little bit from the yep. opening? Yeah. This is one. This is Poppy is at the end of his life. His death Mm. is imminent and he wants to pass on something to his family and Mm. as a metaphor for Australia. Yeah. I was born on Nuremberg. Can you hear it? Nuremberg. If you say it right, it hits the back of your mouth and you should taste blood in your words. Every person around should learn the word for country in the old language, the first language, because that is the way to all time. To time travel, you can go all the way back. My daddy was Buddy Gondawindi and he died a young man by the hands of a bygone disease. My mother was Augustine and she died an old woman by the grip of, well, it was an old world disease too. 
yet nothing ever really dies. Instead, it all goes beneath your feet, beside you, part of you. Look there, grass on the side of the road, tree bending in the wind, fish in the river, fish on your plate, fish feeding you. Nothing is ever gone. Soon when I change, I won't be dead. I always memorise John eleven twenty six. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Yet life rushed through and passed me as it will for each person. Before I believed everything they taught me, I thought when all were dead, that all were gone. And so, as a young fella, I tried to find my place in this short life. I only wanted to decide for myself how I'd live it. But that was a big ask in a country that had a plan for me already mapped in my veins since before I was born. The one thing I thought I could control was my own head. It seemed the most sensible thing to do was to learn to read well. So in a country where we weren't really allowed to be, I decided to be, to get water from the stones, you see. After I met my beautiful wife, although beauty was the least of her, strong and fearless was the most of her, well, she taught me lots of things. Big thing, best thing she taught me was to learn to write the words too. Taught me I wasn't just a second-rate man raised on white flour and Christianity. It was my wife Elsie who brought me the first dictionary. I think she knew she was planting a seed, germinating something inside me when she did that. What a companion the dictionary is. There are stories in that book that'll knock your boots off and to this day it remains my prized possession, and I wouldn't trade it for all the tea in China. Wow. <laughs> Actually, while you're clapping, can we just clap for Melissa Lukashenko? She's just won the Nails fucking Franklin Award. <laughs> And here's the new copy with the <laughs> sticker. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, everyone. I felt very awkward holding that in. Book away. Oh, I think I'll get used to it. <laughs> Actually, while you're there, can I ask you? A yeah, of she's going to flip it on me now. Go on. <laughs> um, if anyone hasn't read read this you've been living under a rock and it's the best book you'll read in a long time it's equal uh, best yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um it is you have the most incredible ability and you've been the hero of mine and lots of the younger generation black writers in australia for years and you've got this incredible ability to be humorous natural exact in your emotions, exact in your words, down to where a full stop is. Um, from the opening epilogue of Owen Addison all the way through, there's perfection. I worked it out mathematically. It's about every third line is utter perfection. <laughs> so can you please tell us your secret? <laughs> no. Yeah, OCD. <laughs> Do you want to read a little bit? Is that okay too? Because okay. this opening is right. just, I mean, whatever you like. <laughs> All right. Owen Addison. Sorry for anyone that's just 
turned up to hear about Tara's book. Um, Owen Addison's a, a young Aboriginal boy who's come up to the big city uh, from New South Wales to box, and it's 1943. Um, his mother's instructed him to mind your bloody wind, keep the missionaries away from the family. And a copper has just um, appeared. The red beard strolled over, smiling a smile to chill the marrow of your black bones. He should, shook Mr Lewis's hand. Corbett's the name. So this is him, is it? He asked, swivelling to pin Owen beneath his gaze. The new Jack Johnson. Owen stiffened. Melbourne had rioted after the Negro Johnson had won. Men had died and Mr Lewis was a banana farmer. He knew nothing about Gungies. Ah, uh, Owen's no flash yank, Mr Lewis said mildly. He's just a handy half-caste from Rivertown. Is that right, boy? The sergeant seized upon the adjective. Handy, are you? Try to be. Owen's chin jutted. The sergeant gazed at him, unsatisfied. He leaned closer and his copper's breath blew hot air in Owen's ear. You might be thought something pretty over the border, he said softly. But the last coon that got too handy round here swung for it. Got that? He stepped back laughing as though he'd made a fine and private joke. After a moment of incomprehension, Owen's bladder jerked in fear. He wanted to kill the man standing in front of him, but there was his mother to think of and Reverend O'Sullivan sniffing after his sister's souls. <laughs> Should we talk about reverence? Sorry? Should we talk about reverence? Yes, yes, Actually, let's talk about reverence. Spoke about um, reverence. Yeah, well, the, as I said before, there's three main characters in, in your novel and one... It, it's interesting, actually, because I guess in Australian literature the um, the thinking of how... Or for us, anyway, Aboriginal writers, the thinking of how to portray that distant colonial time has often been through grandfather figures or early um, Aboriginal figures, but you've done something a bit different and you've introduced a German missionary uh, into Wiradjuri country. Was that... I have a question about that. Um, yeah, how much research did you need to do mm. and uh, was he uh, an easy character or did, did you have to, like, do a lot of thinking about how to portray a German voice? Um, well, I have the, had the two strands, so I had August and Poppy mm. came first yeah. and they're from the same family, so Poppy's narrative is a dictionary but it, it not as academic or bland like that. Yeah, that's a, a beautiful device to bring the culture through, literally through language to the, to the reader. Hey? And that's based off, you know, decades and decades of work from Uncle Dr Stan Grant Sr., mm. Stan Grant, the journalist's father, and uh, Dr. John Rudder, linguist, they revitalised and, and brought the Wiradjuri language back from extinction. So I use their work with permission to, um, to tell the story of all time on 500 acres of land. So yep. the book continually comes back to 500 acres of land that borders on, is on the bank of the fictional Murrumbi River. And so 
Poppy is telling the time, the story of all time for his family on those 500 acres and August's narrative is in the contemporary action. It's a third-person voice so it's able to tell the story of all her family when she returns and mm. the contemporary issues that face this 500 acres. Mm. And then to balance that out, I knew I need to talk about the history of colonisation of missionaries and stations in Australia and so I needed that reverence voice to come in mm, mm-hmm. but he had to be German mm. he had to be Lutheran yeah. in order because he's writing a letter at the end of his life too much like Poppy is writing a dictionary at the end of his life and he's writing it in 1915 when obviously he's an enemy of the state mm, mm. and he's reflecting on him his role in opening the mission on those 500 acres in 1880 and denying the people their right to their own culture and their own mother tongue and... And yet at the same time providing a place of refuge in some ways. Absolutely, yeah. There's some beautiful dualities here because he's both invader and oppressor and protector in some senses, although we understand just how very misguided he is at the same time. And then he, he himself becomes imprisoned as a... As an alien. Right, because yeah. I need. I thought only if he understands persecution for his mother tongue, mm. will he only, only then for that time will he mm. be able to reflect on mm. what he has imposed and the effect that's had. Mm. Mm. The suppression and, and the attempted um, extinction yeah. of a language. Yeah, and it's beautifully written, Tara, beautifully done. Uh, the... The knowledge of German Lutheran influence, is that something that is in your family or you had to, no, you had to go and um, into the archives and the history books? Yeah. I knew that there was um, in, I think, Hopevale up north. Oh, yeah, very much so. There's a big Lutheran influence there in Mm. in missionaries. Mm. And I also knew from travelling around Australia for years um, that, there were Indigenous communities that straddled two worlds that had an, an – there were elders that had an affection and they still are mm. for for the Bible and for Christianity. And well, Daniel Browning was telling me yesterday that there's an issue at the moment where the Fingal elders are um, having trouble accessing the church because of some local politics and, yeah, it's, it's an issue. It's definitely an issue. So yeah. that, that affection for the old church is um, – really strong in lots of communities, I think. Yeah. But are you saying that the Lutherans weren't active in Wiradjuri country or you're not sure? Uh, no, I don't think they are, actually. Okay. Yeah. So that was my fictional... Artistic license. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. But um, there's also a town in Queensland called Massacre and I brought that down to New South Wales and called the town Massacre Plains. Yeah. And I made sure that it didn't really... It sat on Wiradjuri country but it's a mm. fictional town and, and wanted to bring in you know, policies and violence that had happened all over Australia and yeah. compact them down to that 500 yeah. acres. Mm. Well, it rings extremely authentic on the page, I have to say, and uh, it, it, the seamlessness of your writing was uh, just a beauty to read. I didn't want to put the book down. Same. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we've... Um, One of the uh, fairly unusual strands in the book is uh, the voice of Poppy but also of Poppy's widow, Auntie Elsie, and they're reflecting upon the past and the danger of staying in the past, I suppose, which is something that we're often told by conservative commentators and 
general ignoramuses, you know, it's over, it's done, forget about it, let's go and celebrate Gallipoli. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but RDLC, uh, RDLC is, says explicitly um, to August that there's a danger in seeing yourself as a victim and she says the land is the victim now. Uh, at the same time, RDLC is fairly powerless in the face of the tin mine that um, history has meant is going to be developed on, on the 500 acres. So uh, do you think Aunt Elsie's right uh, when she says that the land is the victim now? Yeah, she says culture had no armies mm. um, when she's talking about all the artefacts that were, that were taken from the land. There's a lot of... Mm. Um, there's just lots of scenes and sort of around museums and archives and and, yeah. li- and the role of, of libraries as well and mm. um, docu- voyeuristic kind of documentation of, of the, yeah. the native. Yeah. Um, I think that my female characters, I wanted them to have backbones that they themselves disco- were able to um, discover and yeah. um, so... Or, or they're almost all without agency, mm, mm. I notice. And you don't notice this consciously when you're writing, but I noticed afterwards. Yeah. And it's sort of like um, an injured bird that mm. falls out of the nest. And if you touch it and try to, you know, give it some water and mm. um, and coddle it and bring it back to life, it'll probably end up dying. But if you mm. leave it, the mother will be flying around watching yep. until she gets her strength and the bird can take off for itself on, mm. on its own will. And I think the women are a lot like that. They need to um, access their own agency themselves. So you're the novelist, like, hovering over the top of these characters but not diving in to save them and allowing them to find their own strength. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Maybe I couldn't. I think – I don't know what it's like for you, Melissa, but writing female characters is so – Personal, you can't help but reflect on mm. your daughter, yourself, your mother, your auntie, your mm. grandmother, mm. and they take on, they have those um, insecurities or injuries mm. in different ways that you didn't even mean to happen. Yeah, there's a, certainly a lot of unconscious characterisation goes on in any novel um, that I've ever been associated with. Anyway, you think you know what you're doing at the beginning of a book, roughly, don't you? And you get to the end and you think you actually didn't have a clue. <laughs> Um, we just we practice all these um, answers, don't we? Before we <laughs> on stage. Uh, so the missing sister, the missing sister, gives August a particular um, skill or uh, gift, and uh, it's it. I, I just I read this early on in the book, and I thought that is the most brilliantly creative character um, trait that I have ever read. You want to talk about August's gift and how she develops it? Um, or how it comes ha- to her, I, I should say. Can I ask say. you how you interpreted her gift first <laughs> as a reader? Um, well, I wasn't sure if it was psychosis or not. Yeah. I wasn't sure what she was seeing. I knew what she thought she was seeing yeah. because she can see into the bones of things is yeah. how you put it, hey? Yeah, she can see into the... Um, the x-ray of people and 
um, I was, I kept thinking about, I think it's Rebecca in A Hundred Years of Solitude. Uh-huh, uh-huh. When she's eating the dirt, I kept thinking back to the Latin American writers and the magical realist element that mm. they use to explain um, intergenerational trauma, basically. Mm. Mm. And I needed, basically, um, if you cut all the timelines in in the reverence timeline it's all very linear he'll talk about dates and journals mm. and he mm. refers back to when his parents came over on the boat mm. and in poppy's dictionary he's talking about the dreaming concept of time which is that all time exists right now mm. and it's more of a, a whirlwind mm. and i wanted august to be able to see through both concepts of time almost. Mm. So she has this, um, I think it's called synesthesia. Synesthesia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, she has this, um, this mix-up, this blend of all her, her feelings and emotions and her bodily functions are all um, messed up. Yeah, They're broken. Sort of wired wrong, aren't they? Yeah, everything's yeah. wired wrong. Wired very differently. What it made me think of was X-ray art from the NT and as if she's walking around in a world that was composed of X-ray art, actually. Yeah, yeah. it is. And I, that was purposely done because when yeah. she goes to the museum, it's yeah. that artwork that she mm. cries yeah. over yeah. Yeah. is the, the bones of things. Yes. And, yeah. and there's, a big, there's a symbolism of bones mm. that it keeps returning to. Yeah. I can see you've folded over a lot of um, pages in your book there. Do you want to give us another short excerpt? Yes. I'll give you a little bit of um, the reverence so you can hear the change of voice. Mm. To Dr George Cross, the British Society of Ethnography from Reverend Ferdinand Greenleaf, 2nd of August, 1915. I felt the great desire to address you. So late in the hour and is suddenly apparent the late hour of my life. The last time we spoke was many years ago now in the banquet hall of the World's Fair Mirage in that compelling city of Chicago. I think on the evening with a golden warmth hung around it, though I'd still been a confused man of the cloth and of the empire. We spoke of your wife and I send my best wishes to her and your family at this turbulent time. I feel compelled to clarify why I refuse to bring the measurements of my residence to the New South Wales exhibit, refuse to catalogue the minutiae of my brother's lives for all to see there against the ebb of Lake Michigan. In looking back, indeed, they are my brothers. We are bound by what we have undergone together all these years. Of course, I mentioned none of this at the time, and no man would in those circumstances. Yes, no man would tell of all the things I've come to know. Perhaps to tell all might be the sure way to ruin the great work we've accomplished here, but we live, Dr Cross, in different times now. In leaving this world, it is my hope it came to something, salvation in some small part, and that the work remaining to do and undo will prosper on and save those wretches from themselves, even if my doubts have remained stronger than hopes. And it's only today that I thought on it again and wondered briefly if it should be noted before handing over my living body. You may be my last hope, Dr Cross. I seem to be drawn to expunge the past to you. Alas, the state of affairs awakens truths in the spirit long denied. After many years, I have recognised that in times of stress, tongues either fold or flap, and having a crisis of the latter, I hope you can forgive. 
me for such blasphemous indulgence. Before I was detained, I tried to assemble my personal possessions. In doing so, I unearthed the mission's early records and also my childhood Bible, which was the only thing I came to Australia with beside my mother and father on the skills, the final ship to the colony. The skilled rolled the, rode the seas that had little kindness. Aboard, in addition, was Master Carpenter, Mr Uber, and Master Miller, Mr Schmidt. I remember them both more clearly than my parents or myself. I think perhaps because of how many had died on the journey to the new land and because it was always Mr Uber and Mr Schmidt who fashioned the coffins, lowering the earth's furniture into the sea. On reflection, I suppose those boxes must have been the least masterful thing they ever made. Concealed inside my child's Bible was a newspaper cutting that had survived the many years lived there in the dust bowl of the interior, clipped from the Gazette on the day of my 13th birthday in 1851. There, in plain English, was the news that the physicist Foucault released his pendulum from the roof of the Pantheon in Paris, France, proving that the Earth rotated... I have to hark back to my earliest hopes to wonder why I'd kept the one birthday clipping of the many my father saved for me, but I know the reason, how I too wanted to prove something, that the heavens rotated, that they could rotate and light upon any man, even a man here. Mm, wow. Can I ask you another question? Sure, if I, if I live that long. <laughs> I wanted to ask if you could talk about your great-grandmother and mm. a little bit about the context of writing this book and how it came about. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Brisbane. Um, my family's been in Queensland for three generations now. And uh, the reason we're in Queensland... Um, Obviously, that's a white man's idea. But the reason uh, we've been off Bundjalung country for that long is because my great-grandmother was removed. Uh, she would never talk about her life when she was alive. Sorry, I'm not um, addressing half the room, I just realised. Um, yeah, she, she died um, a decade or so before I was born, but she raised my mother uh, in the Gympie, Tinkan Bay area. And she would never speak about her early life. The only things we know about her is that she was taken away at eight years old and that she said she was taken from the Tweed River area and she was taken to be a slave, more or less, an unpaid servant of a white family in Gympie where she had to um, do the washing at eight years old and she had to wash the clothes of the white children. Never learnt to read or write. Um, but in the, the one, we've got two photos of her and, and in what, the one photo I keep close, she's got a beautiful, radiant smile anyway. And uh, I'm told she had a wicked sense of humour. Uh, in terms of how she influenced the book, uh, we knew, or I knew, that she, there'd been an incident of a shooting that um, at some point in... Uh, Wolvi, which is up near Gympie, that she had shot a man. But we didn't know the details until I went looking in the archives. And again, so many of us are trawling through archives to find family stories and connections. And um, a local fella had been um, stalking her and harassing her for some time. He'd already been um, told to knock off by one of the local other local men. 
uh, and he didn't. And so when my grandmother was out shooting pigeons in the scrub one day to eat, uh, she came across this bloke fencing and there was a scuffle. And uh, he managed to get the rifle off her. And so she picked up a stick and he managed to get the stick off her. And they're out in the middle of the scrub, in the middle of nowhere. And so he's got the rifle and he's got the stick. So she picks up a rock. And I, I just had this image in my mind of this black woman facing this man armed with nothing but a rock and, uh, you know, ready to fight at least for her dignity and maybe for her life. Anyway, the, the fight went on. She got the rifle back and uh, shot him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she didn't kill him, though, and she was arrested for it, of course. Can't have women going around shooting men in the middle of the scrub, let alone, you know, least of all black women. So she was arrested and taken to the watch house. Uh, but when she got to court, uh, she had a sympathetic magistrate and uh, she stood up in court and she said, Yes, Your Honour, I did shoot him. She told the story of what had happened and she said, I was aiming for his heart and I'm only sorry I didn't kill him. <laughs> anyway, she got let off and the, the bloke got six months jail. So sometimes there's some justice in the world. <laughs> Having heard this story in about 2014, 2015, I think, in its full version for the first time, I then promptly forgot about it. And then halfway through this book I realised I was channelling, you know, Granny Christina and... Um, and her defiance and her, her ability to say, no, I'm not going to cop all this stuff. I'm not going to lie down and die. I will fight. And so the, the first section of the book is called Less is Less because it's about class and poverty. And the second section is called If You Don't Fight, You Lose because it's about um, fighting back. Do you, do you believe in this idea that we're, our ancestors are speaking to us? Yeah, I do. I, without, I think we can't always hear them, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, again, in the same way that you write a book and you think you know what you're doing, but you get to the end of it and you realise how profoundly you didn't know what you were doing at all. Uh, I think in this, in that way, you know, the, the ancestors are always speaking to us and whether or not we hear them is a sort of a different question altogether. Yeah. And but I was going to go back to that with Poppy actually because yeah. Poppy has this amazing communion with the ancestors, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. He um he doesn't uh he's taken away so he doesn't have that active influence of elders in his life for a long time and yet he's got so many voices, so many people helping him. Can you tell us where that idea came from? Um, well, the, as I said, I had to tell all time on that land, mm. on the piece of land, and so I had to have, I had to, it just... I was going to ask you about that. Who's, whose rule is that? Yeah, is that yeah. your rule? <laughs> that inner voice. Yeah, yeah. I think it is because I've just showed you, I just sent you an email with the family tree my cousin mm. did who's mm. worked in Aboriginal health for years. Yeah. And for years he's putting, been putting together our family tree and he said the ancestors have been... Speaking to you, mm. they've been telling you the stories. You're our storyteller. Mm. And our family tree actually has um, Wiradjuri, Nyonyawul and Gunjagara mm. ancestry. And I actually discovered, this is only last week, yeah. that um, my great 
great-grandfather, the Gunjagara grandfather, was King Billy of Appen. His name was um, William Russell. This is important, and this story. Yeah. It, I cried for about two days and had goosebumps and shook. Mm. Um, and in the book I put a King Billy, um, this elder, mm. and for no reason. Yeah. And, and then... Do you want to... Will I tell them about the Macquarie thing? Um, if you like. Yeah. You... you um, some of you would no doubt have heard about uh, Governor Lachlan Macquarie and him sending out um, uh, soldiers. Was it half a dozen soldiers? Mm. A few soldiers. And he wanted Watt Contench to go with him, I think. Uh, I can't remember if Watt Contench did actually go or not. But he sent them out with leather sacks and he said, bring me back the heads of a dozen Aboriginal men as a lesson to them that they have to stop. You know, the resistance has to stop. And what Contench um, talked him down, he was a friend of Pachigarang, and uh, he said he got the number lowered to half a dozen heads. Uh, so this uh, uh, killing party went out and uh, the area that they went to was Appen and the heads that they brought back would have been the heads of Appen men, yeah? Yeah. So your ancestors were... Um, targeted and killed by Lachlan Macquarie. And it was over-farming over land. It was over-food yeah. resources. Yeah. And when they took them back to Sydney, um, the party that was left over um, descended on groups of women and children and drove them over the cliff of Appen. Mm. Um, mm. And there was what, it was doc it's highly documented massacre, one of the worst massacres in New South Wales. Yeah. yeah. But Which is new information that these oh. are your direct ancestors, huh? Hey? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then last week when I found mm. that my great-grandfather, King Billy, mm. William Russell, was actually had actually written a book. Yes, that's right. Because we always thought we were mission Wiradjuri or we were convict on my mother's side. And so that he'd written a book. It's 33 pages long. It's called mm. My Recollections. Mm. And I read the archive from the Mitchell Library and it's Poppy's voice. Yeah, yeah. And at the back of it, there's actually an index with a dictionary <laughs> in Gunjagara. <laughs> like, they're speaking to us. Yeah. For yeah. sure. There's no other explanation. Yeah. When, when, we, when you break your heart to write a book like this or, mm. or, or this, mm. there's other forces at work. There must be. Yeah, it, it can get quite spooky sometimes, can't it? I've told the story here before, I think, of... Um, writing Mullumbimby and, and a character dies tragically in the book and I, I went downstairs from writing that scene and for the first time and only time ever, the clock in my lounge room had stopped. <laughs> I've just finished writing the death scene of this character. So, yeah. Oh, the Bible. Yeah, the, uh, the place of the Bible in the book... Um, August is not a fan at all of Christianity. She picks up a Bible in the family home and actually throws it in the bin, which made me recoil when I read it as, as such a, a shocking act in a way, even though I'm not a Christian. Uh, and you contrast that really beautifully in the book with all the ethos of Yindyamara, of the, the Aboriginal civilization and philosophy that sustained Poppy and the ancestors. Um, do you want to... Read a little bit. Okay, so this is the chap second entry of Poppy, and I didn't read the whole thing before because we were running on time, but yeah. there's a word for in English at the beginning and then the Wiradjuri word after, 
And then in the index at the back, it's Wiradjuri first and then English. Mm. Um, and so this is the first entry. Yarran tree, spearwood tree or hickory acacia, yarrani. Mm. The dictionary is not just words. There are little stories on those pages too. After years with the second great book, I figured out the best way to read it. First time I went in like reading the Bible front to back, AA words first. There you find Aaron and him in the book of Exodus, brother of Moses, founder of Jewish priesthood. Aardvark, that animal with the tube nose that eats the ants of Africa. There are abbreviations too, like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, where people go to heal from the bottle. That punched me in the guts. My mummy, she said, the Aborigine is a pity, my son. She said everyone was always insulted by her no matter what she did. So she let herself do the most insulting thing she could think of, take the poison they brought with them and go to town. You could keep reading the dictionary that way, front to back, straight as a dart, or you could get to Aardvark and then skip to Africa and then skip to continent and then skip to nations and then skip to colonialism and then skip over to empire and skip back to apartheid in the A section. That happened in South Africa. Another story. When I was on the letter W in the Oxford English Dictionary, Wire would be in that section. It means no. Wire wasn't there, though, but I thought I'd make it there. Wheat was there, but when I skipped ahead, not our word for wheat, not Ura. So I thought I'd make my own list of words. We don't have a Z word in our alphabet, I reckon. So I thought I'd start backwards and nod to the backwards whitefella world I grew up in. Start at Y, Yarrany. So that is the once upon a time for you. Say it, Yarrany. It is our word for spearwood tree. And from it, I once made a spear in order to kill a man. Please join me in thanking Tara June Winch. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.